is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, I'm, I'm actually going to read the text for us, if, if that's okay. I'm going to read the entire chapter. We're going to look at Isaiah 6 this morning. So I'm going to read the entire chapter as a whole first, and then we'll turn our attention to the things that I feel like the Lord would like us to see from, from this chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they had each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then he said, then I said, excuse me, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds. Turn back and be healed. And then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? God, help me. This is such a a powerful passage, and I have such a desire this morning to help us see you like Isaiah saw you. So I pray that you would, by your Spirit, just work in our midst. Lord, open our eyes. Um, Remove the hindrances. Lord, take away the distractions. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us today. And the guys, God, our lives would be changed because of Isaiah's vision. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question this morning. Has anyone ever seen God? It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer. Has anyone ever seen God? Now, the New Testament is really clear. The New Testament is really clear. No one has ever seen God. Here's John chapter 1, verse 18. And no one has seen God except for Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only, God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known, John 1.18. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
First Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone is immortal who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. And yet at the same time, the Bible reports all kinds of people seeing God. Here's a few examples, especially in the Old Testament. Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job, I mean, Jacob wrestled with Penuel, I mean, with God at Penuel. And this is what he said after that. He called the name of the place Penuel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Genesis 32 or Moses, it says of Moses. But since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Or Micaiah the prophet said, Again, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord seated upon his throne, and all the heaven, host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. Second Chronicles 18, 18. Daniel reports to have seen God. Here's what he said. I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Daniel chapter 7. There's more. Amos claimed to see God. Ezekiel claimed to see God. In the New Testament, Stephen says, I saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he must have seen God as well. So how do we reconcile these diverse divergent claims that no one has seen God, no one can see God, and yet lots of people saying they've seen God. I think the answer we find in Ezekiel's words, this is important. I may be belaboring this a little bit, but this is important. Here's what Ezekiel says. Now it came to pass in the 13th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Shabar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. No person has ever truly seen God in his essence, but people have seen visions of God. They have seen things that they understand to be God. They've seen manifestations, human manifestations of God. But only Jesus has seen God. Visions are dreams or imaginations given to us by God to reveal truth. Here's a statement. I'm going to read it because I want to get it right. My own thoughts about visions are that they don't necessarily portray reality as it is, but they portray truth as it is. Now, I'm going to say that again because I really want you to understand what I mean by that. Visions don't necessarily portray reality as it is, but they portray truth as it is. In other words, the elements of the vision may not really be as it is. But the vision itself is portraying the reality of truth. Let me see if I can illustrate. In the Revelation, and I'm just going to pick one thing, but in the Revelation, there's a part where John sees a vision of a woman clothed in the sun and giving birth, while at the same time a dragon is trying to eat the child that's being born, right? I don't believe those things represent reality. I don't believe there's a woman clothed in the sun. I don't believe there's a, uh, a woman giving birth while a dragon's trying to eat the child. However, I think that vision portrays truth as it really was. In other words, the woman, most, most commentators believe that when John saw that vision, the woman was Israel giving birth to the Messiah, and the dragon was Satan trying to destroy Jesus. So I think the visions portray truth, but the vision itself isn't necessarily as reality is. So with that kind of backdrop, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. 
Did Isaiah see God? No, Isaiah saw a vision of God. And he didn't see the essence of God. He saw a vision that God gave him. And the vision was meant to portray truth. The vision was meant to, to encourage, embolden, energize, comfort Isaiah in light of some of the things that were happening in his day. Was, did, was, does the vision of Isaiah represent a reality or is it representing truth? And I'm suggesting to you, and I can be wrong, but I'm suggesting to you that Isaiah's vision portrays the truth of who God is. And what my desire for us today is this. Man, I desire for us to see God as he was revealing himself to Isaiah. I want us to see God for who he is in the vision that he gave Isaiah. This is, this is for us. And so as I've gone through the vision, I, I want you to see the things that the vision represented as reality. I want you to see the things that are true about God, your God, our God. Be one true and only God. I want you to see the things that Isaiah saw in the vision. So here's the first one. Our God, Isaiah's God, is alive. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw God, Isaiah says. Uzziah is dead, but in the vision, God is saying to him, I still am alive. I'm alive. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. When the universe materialized at the hand of God, however that went down, he was the creator. He was already alive when, when the universe was created because he created it. When Abel died, from the time that Abel died until the 120 who died uh, just in the last minute around the world, God is still alive. Though we all die, God is still alive. A gazillion ages from now, God is still going to be alive. Now, I want you to get this. It's important. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He wasn't dead. Here's what God is trying to portray to Isaiah. Earthly people may die. Earthly leaders may die. But I, I live without exception almost. And I say without exception, but in the next 50 years, every head of state will be dead. Every, every head of state probably in the next 50 years, uh, won't, excuse me, may not be dead, but probably won't be a head of state at that point. Give it, a, give it 110 years from now and, and there'll be 10 billion new people on the planet. And all six billion of us that are on the planet now, we will have perished from the earth like King Uzziah. Yet, God it will still be alive. God will still be here. He'll still be alive. Never had a beginning. His existence doesn't depend on life like ours does. He's always been. Your God is alive. Here's the second thing. And I don't really have these numbers. I should say, and here's the next thing. Our God is sovereign. He's alive, and our God is sovereign. God is saying to Uzziah, I am king. Verse 6, I mean, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. I saw him on a throne. God is sovereign, which means God is a king. That's what the word sovereign means. God is the king. God is a ruler. Now, some people want to make sovereignty out to be more than it is. Some people say sovereignty means that God meticulously controls everything that happens. Not a dust mite moves without God moving it. And if God didn't move it, he'd no longer be sovereign. The problem with all of that is in the English dictionary, sovereignty, sovereignty does not mean control. 
Sovereignty, the United States government is sovereign within the American territory, but that doesn't mean that the government controls everything within the American borders or causes all that happens. If you look up sovereignty in the dictionary, you're not going to find control as one of its synonyms. Sovereignty or sovereign means the power and the right to rule. Uzziah, the sovereign of Israel, was dead. But the true sovereign, the true king of all, he was still very much alive. But God is sovereign. God is the king. Our God is sovereign. Our God is supreme. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Not only is God sovereign, everyone, but God is the supreme sovereign. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He, he's the greatest of all. When Isaiah was in the temple that day, or when he had, was he in the temple? Or was, was he in the temple when he had the vision? Or was he at home when he had the vision of being in the temple, you know? We don't know. But in the vision, the, the train of God's robe fills the, the temple. Imagine a king walking in here today and the train of his robe, it fills the entire room. Does it, does it go all the way to the ceiling? Does it just fill up all the ground space, you know? I don't know. But the train of God's robe filled the temple. Now here's what that means. Archaeologists discovered something really enlightening from the records of King Shalmaneser V. The kings of Assyria during their reign, here's what they would do. When they would conquer a king, when they were conquer king, they would cut off the tail of his robe and they would sew it on onto their robe. And so these kings would add tail after tail after tail after tail. The longer your robe, the greater the king you were. In Isaiah's vision, the, the tail of his robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. It was another way of saying, and again, is this a reality? Does God really have a robe that he wears around in his temple in heaven and it fills the building? No, I don't think that's a reality. But it, it portrays a real truth. And the real truth is that he's the greatest and he's the, he's the supreme sovereign. He's the king above all kings because he really has all of their trains sewed to the end of, of his train. Several men have been called king of kings in your Bible on the earth. One of them was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him, right? He was referred to as a king of kings. But uh, God made him eat like eat dirt or eat weeds like an animal for a period. And after it was all over, here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. I, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Paul would agree with Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what Paul said to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 6. God will bring the appearing of the Lord Jesus about in his own time. He is the blessed 
This is speaking about Jesus. He is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. I say that applies to Jesus because he's the antecedent to that, but really, I think that's God, whether it's Jesus or whether it's the Father or whether it's the Spirit. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God isn't just sovereign, everyone. He's not just a king. He is the king. He's the supreme king. He's the king above all kings. Here's the next thing that Isaiah's vision revealed. It reveals to us that our God is revered. Verse 2, seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. No one knows who and what these these six-winged strange creatures are. They have intelligence. They have wings. They have faces. They have feet. They're never mentioned again in the Scripture. And do they exist? Are they real? Is this a reality? Could be. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. But they are presenting to us a real truth. And the real truth is that God is revered. God is worshipped. God is honored. These creatures are powerful. And when they spoke, it says that the, the doorways, the, he's in this vision, and the doorways of the temple are shaking with the power of their voices as, as they speak. But notice this, they, they can't even look at God. Did you notice that? They cover their faces so they don't see God. They cover their feet, evidently a, a sign of humility. They're not tainted with sin like you and me, and yet they are revering and honoring God with such humility. Think about this. All throughout the Bible, when we see, when we see angels appearing before men, what do we see? We see men fall down as dead men. We see, we, we see men worship them, right? And we hear them say, hey, get up. Stop worshiping me, right? They also say quite often, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Here are these powerful creatures that we are terrified by, and yet they revere God. They worship God. They honor God. Here's the thing you need to see about your God. He is revered throughout all his creation. He's given us... He's given us the possibility of not revering him, but he is revered nonetheless throughout all his creation. Next, our God is holy. And I'm really excited to share with this with you. Seraphim were standing above him. By the way, how many were there? Do you think three? I used to think three, right? It doesn't say three. Maybe there's tens of them. Maybe there's dozens of these seraphim. However many there are, they're standing above him, and one cries out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. Maybe there's only two. Uh, And his glory fills the whole earth. Now, the root of the word holy, I know you've heard this before, but the root of the word holy means to to cut off or, or to be separate. So a holy thing is something that has been cut away from from something else. And so when we say something is holy or separate, and we talk about it in our our context of our Christian faith or in the context of God, what what we're saying is that something has been cut away from the world and has been separated over unto God. And so therefore in the Bible we find things like holy ground, where the ground has been 
set apart for God. Or we have holy assemblies. By the way, this is a holy assembly. You know, we, we've, we've been set apart. We've come here setting ourselves apart from the world to come here and worship the Lord. And, and I don't mean to be manipulative, but I've been sitting here thinking about it all morning. I, mean, I want to say to all of you on the live stream, you know, come back as soon as you can. Can I just speak to you on the live stream? Come back as soon as you can. You are missed. Your presence here is missed. This is, this is a holy assembly, and we are called to this. We are called to this. We're set apart for this. We're, we're a holy nation. Israel was a holy nation. We are a holy nation, a separate, cut-apart nation from the world, a nation that belongs to God. There's holy garments in the Bible, holy cities, holy men, holy women. These, these are all speaking of someone who's been cut off and cut away and consecrated towards the Lord, right? But what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean that God is holy? And why do the seraphim say it three times? Holy, holy, holy. Well, here's what I think it means when the Bible says God is holy. And it doesn't mean that he does everything morally right. I don't think that's what it means. When it says that God is holy, what it's saying is he's separate from us. He's, he's different from us. He's exceptional. He's in a category all his own. He, he's in a class all by himself because he is holy. He's different than us. He's set apart from us. And you know why? Why does he say, why do they say it? Holy, holy, holy. Some have suggested he, they're saying that because God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. We don't know why they said holy, holy, holy three times. And they could, you could be right if that's what you think. But my thought is that they're not saying it because of the Trinity. They're saying it for emphasis. In our, in our culture, if we're writing something down or if we want to emphasize something, in writing we will bold it, we'll underline it, we'll circle it, we'll, we'll draw it, we'll put exclamation marks at the end of it. And that's how we do it in our writing. Or, or in, our, in our verbiage, we might, if we want to emphasize something, we raise our voice or we, we might yell it or something. But in, in the Hebrew language whether it was in writing or whether it was in speaking. When you wanted to emphasize something, you used repetition. And so Jesus would say something like this, truly, truly, I say to you. He was trying to emphasize, guys, this is something really true and worth listening to. And when somebody emphasized something three times, and I'm, and I'm getting this from Hebrew scholars. I'm, I'm not making this out of nothing. I've, I've read this from the, from the commentary. When the Hebrews wanted to emphasize something, they would use repetition. So I think, and this is just Jimmy, but I think what we're seeing here in this vision is that the seraphim are emphasizing the fact that God is... Different, different, different than us. He's set apart, set apart, set apart from us. He's holy, holy, holy. He's distinct. He's incomparable. He's unrivaled. He's unparalleled. He is God. And really, I think the words just kind of fail. I mean, words just don't, words just don't do it. And so they just cry out, holy, holy, holy. How different you are, God. How separate from us you are. And they're emphasizing God's 
the fact that God is different than us. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. Next, the vision tells us that our God is glorious and his glory fills the whole earth. Now, the glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. The glory of God is the, ma- the outward manifestation of his separateness. And that would be maybe his power, his goodness, his majesty. When we talk about his glory, we're talking about him revealing these things to the world. That's what the glory of God is. And so Psalm 91 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. The universe proclaims the expanse of his hands. Romans 1.20 says, For God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. God has demonstrated his glory. God has demonstrated his holy, holy, holy self in his creation, his power, his divine nature. It's all seen in creation. And, and, and Romans 1.20 says, uh, for God's invisible attributes is eternal. I, I read this just a second, but the part I want to get. He says, so people are without excuse. The glory of God, the demonstration of himself in creation, much of the world suppresses that. I know some people say everybody in the world suppresses that. I don't believe that. I believe much of the world, maybe most of the world, suppresses the knowledge of God in creation. But there are those in the world who by faith turn to him. Why do we suppress the truth of God's glory? Maybe it's because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe that's the reason we suppress it, right? So if I fall short of the glory of God and I know that, maybe I want to suppress his glory so that I don't have to answer to him. And yet creation manifests the glory of God. It manifests the character, the nature, and it manifests his existence. And, and though creation manifests some glory of God, no one manifested the glory of God more than Jesus The glory of God is not seen anywhere any more than in the person of Jesus. When Lazarus was sick and dying, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, Son of God, excuse me, may be glorified through it. Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. We we see his magnificence, his worth. We see God's loveliness. We see his love. We see his grandeur. We see his perfections all revealed to us, both in creation and then most specifically in the Son, in the Lord Jesus. Here's the next thing about our God. Our God is gracious. And then I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the, the, the Lord of armies. So confronted by this vision that Isaiah sees of God, whose train fills the temple, and these seraphim hollering, you know, speaking so loudly that the doors of the temple are shaking in this vision. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe, it starts there. Woe is me. God, I'm a liar. My lips, they're, they're not clean. I, I, don't, I don't speak always right. And, and then he says, and I live in a world filled with people like me. It's so telling, isn't it, that in the previous chapter, Isaiah is confronting everyone else and he uses the word woe. My brother pointed this out to me. <laughs> I just had to, I had to tell y'all. In the ch- previous chapter, chapter 5, Isaiah's, woe to you greedy people. 
Woe to you people who drink so much or drink to excess. Woe to you people who drag your sin around. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you proud people. He has all these woes, right? But in chapter 6, when Isaiah sees God, it's not, wow, woe are those people. It's, it's woe is me. And I can't help but imagine in chapter 5, Isaiah is probably having a little bit of a, you know, boy, woe is them, but I'm, I'm all right. But when he sees the Lord, he cries, woe is me. It sort of reminds me of Peter. Remember Peter? Uh, he's fished all night and he, he's tired, cleaning his nets. Jesus has to borrow his boat. Then he says, let's go fishing. And Peter says, Lord, we fished all night. We've cleaned the nets. You don't fish during the day. But, but because you say it, I'll do it. Not really, but I'll do it. And he does it. And of course, the boats are sinking. And you remember, you remember with so many fish, you remember Peter's reply? He forgets about the fish. and goes and gets out in front of Jesus and says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. In other words, both Peter and Isaiah, when confronted with God, they both are like, God, get away from me. I'm, I'm undone. I'm, un I'm the one. Listen, as long as you and I continue to compare ourselves to somebody worse than ourselves, we're just, we're always going to miss the point. I'm not to compare myself to the worst example of a human being that I might find. I'm not even to compare myself to you who may be worse than me. I'm definitely not going to compare you if you're better than me. I'm going to avoid you, right? But that's what we do. But, but we, don't need to, we don't need to compare ourselves to, to one another. We need to compare ourselves to the Lord and his holiness, his separateness, his uniqueness, his character. We need, and when we do that, we say, oh man, I'm undone. Death is my end. But, but God is glorious and his glory is gracious. And so in verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a coal, a glowing coal. And he had taken it from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity has been removed. So in the vision, one of the seraphim flies over to the altar. It sounds like he used tongs, grabbed the, grabbed the coal out, then put it in his hand, or maybe he had it with the tongs. But then he goes over and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it, and he says, your sin has been atoned. Uh, your sin has been removed. It kind of reminds me, doesn't it, you, of, of Isaiah chapter 1, come let us reason together, though our sins be as scarlet, they'll be washed white as snow. The difference between Isaiah and most of his co-patriots was this. They, they didn't repent. They didn't look in faith to God. Isaiah is confessing his sin. His heart is one of repentance. And uh, we're all people with unclean lips. We're all people just like them, just like him. And, and yet, just like God atoned for Isaiah's sins, God has atoned for all of our sins. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus died for us. Jesus atoned for my, ten, my death. He atoned for my sin. He's gracious. Psalm 116, verse 5, the Lord is gracious and righteous. He's compassionate. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. One more text, and this is from the New Testament. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, made us alive with Messiah, even though we were dead in our sins. You are saved by grace. He, is all, he has also raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavens uh, in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is gracious. He's atoned for us. God is, God is, God is, man, I'll just repeat myself again. 
God is gracious. God is sending. I was going to leave this one out, verse 8. After this experience where Isaiah feels broken and undone because of his sin and God atones for him and cleanses him and lets him know that he's accepted and forgiven, God, God our God is ascending God. He's, ascend, he's sending. Verse 8, Then I heard a voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah said, I said, Here I am, send me. Almost left this out. Almost left this out, but I couldn't leave, leave it out because God is ascending, commissioning God. After atoning for Isaiah's sin, he immediately asked, who's going to go and represent me? Who's going who's to go? And Isaiah's quick to volunteer. And obviously this is a call directed, this is directed at Isaiah. It's not directed at you. It's not directed at me. It's directed at Isaiah, though indirectly. But in the New Testament, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, and you and I become a part of it, before he leaves to return to heaven, and he says, hey, you guys carry on, build the kingdom, you're my representatives, you're going to go for me. He says, go and make disciples of, to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, and I guess we could say, well, that's just for those special dudes. It's just for those special apostles. But I don't think so. I think that was, a, that was God sending you and me. I think he's sending all of us. We're, we're all to go. Just like Isaiah was to go. Who will go for me? Who will go represent me? God asked. Isaiah says, I'm here. Folks, God said the same thing to us. Go. Go and make disciples. He's not asking. He's just saying go. And, and so you and I are responsible to go. We're responsible to go. And I'm not talking about going to the ends of the world. I'm talking about going to your neighbors and, and, and just loving on your neighbors in Jesus' name. Loving on your coworkers in Jesus' name. Speaking about Jesus, talking about him. I mean, honoring him as your king. He's sending. God is our sending God. He's ascending God. He's sending you and me. And then finally, our God is judge. Our God is judge, verse 9. And he replied, and this is God, replied, um, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. This passage is quoted five times in the New Testament, four in the Gospels, maybe in the same context, but in each of the Gospels and then in, in the book of Acts as well. And it's been, this passage has been debated considerably, as you can imagine, throughout the last two millennia. The debate isn't over what the words literally say. It's pretty straightforward as to what the words say. Uh, the debate is over how are we to understand these words? What, what, are we to, what are we to take away from what God said to Isaiah that day? And so the words are kind of strange. The command is strange. It kind of goes like this literally. Isaiah must command the people to hear without understanding. They're to look without really seeing. He's to render their hearts, the hearts of these people, insensitive and to make their ears dull and their eyes dim. And why is he to do this? Literally, it says, so that God doesn't have to heal them. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It almost appears as if God is instructing Isaiah to make sure that these people remain stubborn and unrepentant so that he doesn't have to forgive them. So the question then, is that really how we're to understand this command that uh, God gave to Isaiah. 
Now, many are content to believe that. Many are content to believe that's exactly what God meant to do. He didn't want to forgive them. He wanted to judge them. And, and so we're to read it as face value. We're to read it just like it says literally, and we're to understand it that way. I, I want you to know I, I don't agree. I don't think that's how we're to understand these verses. I think they fly in the face of every prophet that God sent to Israel calling them to repentance. I think it flies, that understanding of what uh, God said to Isaiah flies in the face of uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Is it verse 18? Come let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. In other words, if, if God had no desire to reason with them so that they might repent, so that he might wash them white as snow, why would he tell Isaiah to go out there and and make it impossible for them to believe so that he could judge them. I just don't think that's what those words mean. So how, is there another way of understanding the text? And I think there is. Let me give you two possible. This is going to get a little bit technical, but I think it's important. So I want to give you two ways of understanding the text that don't have to lead to that conclusion that literally God's saying, I don't want to forgive them. I want you to go and harden their hearts and, and, you know, make it so they can't understand. I don't think that's what he's saying. Here's one way of understanding it. You can understand God's words as being uh, rhetorical irony. So here's an, here's an illustration. I have a rebellious son and he's not re- listening to my advice. And so I might try to use irony with him and might say something like, all right, son, you don't have to study. Why bother? Just lay around, waste your life. Don't work hard. Otherwise, you might get accepted into MIT or Stanford and become a successful person admired by everyone, especially clever and pretty college girls. You wouldn't want that, would you? So it could be that God's just using irony here. That, you know, that this is, this is an ironical statement that God is taking, meaning the opposite, but if you would, trying to use irony to motivate the people. That could be the case. I, I prefer this second way of understanding the text. And this is where it gets a little bit more technical, but let me see if I can um, explain it. Um, and, and this is that the Hebrew language often uses verbs in the active, but doesn't mean them as it's stated, but means them as a potential for the future. So again, let me see if I can illustrate, and I'm going to just read this, but in his copious work on biblical figures of speech, E.W. Bullinger listed several ways that the Hebrew and Greek languages use verbs to mean something other than their strict literal usage. He listed several verses that show that languages use active verbs to express the agent's design or attempt to do uh, something, even though the thing was not actually done or desired. To illustrate, in discussing the Israelites, Deuteronomy 26.68 states, You shall be sold unto your enemies, and no man shall buy you. The translators of the New King James, for instance, recognized the idiom and rendered this verse, you shall be offered for sale, even though the verb was used in the active sense. The text clearly indicates that they would not be sold because there would be no buyer, yet the Hebrew active verb for sold was used. In the New Testament, this is still Bollinger, in the New Testament, a clear example of this type of usage is found in 1 John 1.10, which states, if we say that we have not sinned, we present active verb, we make God a liar. But no one can make God a liar. 
The attempt to deny sin is the equivalent of attempting to make God a liar, which is rendered with an active verb as if it actually happened. Verbs, therefore, can have an idiomatic usage that may convey something other than a strict literal meaning. And I believe that's what's happened here in Isaiah. I don't know if you followed that. If you, if you didn't and you want to, ask me afterwards and we'll sit and talk. But, but this one I think has happened in Isaiah. And I think the translation of the Septuagint will, will support this, okay? And uh, so the Septuagint, if you don't know what that is, a few hundred years before uh, Jesus, Hebrews or Greek Hebrews, they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. Okay, so the Septuagint comes from 70. There were 70 men, I think, that did this. But they translated the Old Testament into Greek, like we've translated the Old Testament into English, that sort of thing. They translated it into Greek. And this is, what, this is how they translated the Isaiah passage in the Greek Septuagint. This is 200 years or so before Jesus. And he said, go and say to this people, you shall hear, but you do not understand. You shall see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull and their ears heavy of hearing and their eyes have been closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn for me to heal them. The Greek scholars or the Hebrew Greek scholars translated the Septuagint like this. In other words, that God's words, though in the present, were meant to convey that this is what will happen, that when Isaiah preaches, this is how the people will respond. They will not listen. They will not turn. They will not repent. They will harden their hearts. They will suppress the truth that is being preached by you, Isaiah. They will reject my appeals through you. In verse 11, then I, Isaiah, said, until when, Lord? Seeming to be asked the question, until when, do you want me to preach this? Till when do you want me to do this? And he, God, replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when fell. The holy seed is the stump. How long do I preach? How long do I preach, Isaiah asked? And God's answer is this until my judgment falls, until, until I judge the people, until the exile takes place and I force people out, until I burn the land and, and I cut down my people, I remove my people. He said, there'll be a stump left. The stump will be the stump, like you cut down a tree, the stump will be my holy seed. It'll be my people that are my people. But you keep preaching until my judgment falls. And, and, and the thing that I want you to see about God, and we talked about this, I think it was last week, we talked about this, that God is not just glorious and, and, and gracious, but he's judge. He's judge. And he tells Isaiah, you're to do this until I judge. He will be faithful to judge. So everyone, behold our God. Behold our God. He's alive forevermore. He's king. And he's the supreme king. He's worshipped throughout his creation. That doesn't mean everybody worships him. I think there's coming a day, just let me interject this. I think there's coming a day when everyone will worship. Because everyone else will be destroyed. Everyone else will perish. And we'll all worship the king. But right now, God, God allows for people not to revere him. But God is revered in his creation. He's holy 
separate from us, distinct, different. He's glorious in that his holiness has been revealed to a whole world. He's gracious and he's sending and he's judge. The penalty has been enacted. The wages of sin is death. The person who sins shall die. That's all of us we die. But Jesus has come to die for us, to rescue us, to give us resurrection and eternal life with him for those who put their hope and trust in him. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.